Radio in South Africa. It's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. Yes, we are back. Another episode of The Long and the Short of It. You thought we disappeared, but... <laughs> We're back. We're back. We are back. The short over there, the long over here. So what do we got, Sai? What's up next? Well, Dil, given that you were part of the Retief Khoisan interview, this is not <laughs> going to come as a surprise. But on today's episode, we've got the goose. Two-time US Open champion Retief Khoisan, or as the people in the States will know him as Retief Goosen. Or the Iceman, as yeah. they called him as well. And he was certainly cool as ice, uh, winning those two US Open titles back in 2001, 2004. And I, and I, I cast my mind back, size a young sports journo, staying up late and watching that first US Open title. First of all, Khoisan three-putting the 72nd green, oh, yeah. plunging us and then into despair. To, they come, having to come back the next day for an 18-hole playoff. playoff. With Mark Brooks, unfortunately, he came through. And then three years later, a unique situation, two South Africans in the final group going into the final final round of a major at the 2004 US Open at Shinnecock, Ernie Elson, Retief Khoisan, and then seeing Khoisan put on an absolute display in clutch putting to hold off Phil Mickelson. And of course, the following year, 2005, it was the other way around, wasn't it? Yeah, when he blew it, and uh, I think Michael Campbell winning the US Open that year. It was indeed. So Retief, I mean, he's a hell of a guy. He's a hell of a golfer. 34 professional wins, European Tour Player of the Year in 2001, European Tour Order of Merit winner 2001 and 2002, as well as six President's Cup appearances, and as you mentioned, Dill, two major victories as well. He's no slouch, and he's our guest on today's episode of The Long and the Short of It. Well, it's great to be joined on the podcast by Retief Khoisan, the goose, or do they call you the grey goose now, Retief? <laughs> Yeah, I suppose I'm getting a little bit towards the grey side, but uh, uh, unfortunately, that's just the way it's going to be for the rest of my life. It ain't going to get any darker, it's just going to get whiter. <laughs> well, I'm looking at you on the video here, and um, I'm grateful you can't see Dylan and myself because we are hardly fashion icons. You're looking bloody good. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've been busy the last you know, five weeks. We've been playing a lot, and uh, I've also been uh, watching my diet a little. I've been... With all this time off, uh, you know, I've been overindulging on the wine and the food. And uh, so I've, I've, I've tried uh, to lose a few pounds in the last five weeks. I sort of lost about five or six pounds. And yeah, I'm just trying to eat a little bit more sensible and not keep stuffing myself. And uh, yeah, body feels a little better and uh, the golf is starting to come around too. Well, at the opposite end of the spectrum is Dale Hayes. Hello, Dale. How are how are you? <laughs> and Simon Hobday always said I eat like a vulture and I go to the toilet like a bossy. <laughs> well, it's nice to have Dale Hayes on the chat as well. We we've missed you the past couple of episodes. Dale, are you well? I'm fine, thank you. Yes, doing well. All good. Thank you very much. Great Retief. It's great to have you on the other side there. You know, you've thank enjoyed you. such a wonderful career. I mean, you've done it all. You won in Europe. You led the European Order of Merit. You won two U.S. Open championships. You've won all over the world. I mean, it, it's been an unbelievable career. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when you were a kid playing golf at Paul Aquario, Petersburg as it was in those days, did you ever think this could happen? And you'd still be doing it. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, if you think growing up, there wasn't much golf on TV. Pretty much you saw the British Open and uh, and otherwise you saw better the South African tour on TV. Um so for me, you know, in those days, in the, uh, 
early 80s, uh, late 70s, it, it was pretty much, you know, the guys that played in Europe, that was sort of my hero, Seve and uh, Faldo and Woozy and those guys that played that was sort of 10, 15 years older than me. Yeah, playing at Polokwane, you know, there wasn't much to do there. Um, besides, you know, you played a lot of uh, school sports, but uh, we have only had the one golf course and Lucky we lived very close to that. And for me, it was easy to get down to the golf course every afternoon. And really, from about the age of 10, the game really uh, got to me. And um, I wanted to get down to the golf course every day. And uh, really, that's where my junior career kicked off, really, from early age. My dad managed to get me down to some junior events in Victoria and Joburg and uh, around the country. And and that's also the first time I met Ernie, uh, you know, when we were both 13. And, you know, I wanted to be a good amateur player too. And really had a great amateur career and managed to win uh, quite a few junior events and amateur events and then the South African Amateur Championship. And really once all of that happened, I said to myself, you know, there's no reason why I can't give this a give this a go in, in the professional ranks. And uh so really, I would say, yeah, from the age of 17 onwards, I, I definitely, this is something that I wanted to do was be a professional golfer um, and finish school, did my two-year military service and straight after that turned pro. And yeah, like you say, here we are, you know, 30 plus years ago since that last day at, in the military, uh, still going strong, luckily. You know, luckily, it's been a great career. I've, I've, like you say, won around the world a lot. And, uh, you know, obviously, the greatest honor uh, was uh, getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, then you know that you've done something for this game around the world if you get inducted in the Hall of Fame. So I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed and, and thankful for the Hall of Fame committee think that I've done a great thing for the game. And now on a Champions Tour, you know, I'm playing with guys that was 10, 15 years older than me still that I used to look up as a junior and... Uh, hanging out with them is is great. It's uh, the Champions Tour is really a great uh, um, sort of second stage in your career to play on. Well, thanks, Ratif. You've answered all of our questions. It's been great having you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ratif, let's let's return to those early days though, uh, and and those first recollections of coming up against Ernie. Uh, what, what can you remember? All that you say you were thirteen. So that's that's going back about 39, 40 years. Um, what was a young Ernie else like and what were those early days like competing against each other? Well, the, yeah, the first time I met Ernie was funny enough, uh, was 13. I was maybe 14 and he's a year or so younger than me, but uh, it was in Bloemfontein in the South African Amateur Championship. I wasn't playing on any golf team back then and uh, and uh, Ernie just came back from America uh, winning the Junior World Championship and uh, that's the first time I met Ernie and, and he's Brother Durkee and uh, yeah, from there on, uh, just me and Ernie has uh, played with against each other all the way through till now. Yeah, so it's it's been a great relationship with Ernie over the years. Do you get to see him much uh, and, and connect besides at, at, at Champions Tour events? Well, I you know <clears throat> me and Ernie for some reason we seem to get drawn every week now in the first <laughs> round. We was talking about it the other day. We've probably played more golf together now in the last you know few months than we have probably played in the last fifteen years. So it's it's uh, it's been great uh, having Ernie on a tour. It's been uh, obviously a great addition. And but yeah, we. We're catching up a little bit on things we sort of missed over the years. I, I mean, I was going to say, is there anything left for you two to talk about? Well, you know, um, Ernie is still, you know, he's teaching me still how to have a few drinks still, so now and then, and uh, 
stay up late <laughs> and things like that, you know. So I'm, I'm actually learning very quickly from him. I'm too quickly probably is the word to say. Um, no, you strike, but, me yeah, as a, you strike me as a good pupil. <laughs> no, we, we, we get along very well, me and Ernie. And uh, like I say, we've, we've uh, probably been closer in the last this year than we've probably been in the last 15 years. It's just we see so much of each other now. Jeff, I notice, I notice on your shirt, though, you say that Ernie's teaching you to drink. But on the collar of your shirt, it's got the goose wines. Even Ernie doesn't have an advert for his wines on his clothes. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm still trying to sell mine um, and so on. Uh, Ernie, is, uh, Ernie is not selling that much wine lately. He's drinking most of it before he can sell it. So uh, uh, no need for him to advertise. <laughs> when people think of, of Retef Gwersen, they associate lightning. I mean that that uh, the story about you being struck by lightning as a as a kid. I think at Polokwane Golf Club or at Petersburg Golf Club. Just tell us exactly what happened and and how that all turned out. Oh, sorry about that. Um, uh, it's Andy. Um, he's pissed off. Yeah, no, I I personally can't remember anything about the lightning strike. Uh, obviously, very lucky to to get out of that. And funny enough. Uh, I spent a couple of days uh, in December with my cousin Henry that played with me that day. Um, and um, he was really telling me sort of the more ins and outs of the story and uh, what he saw, how bad I was hit. Uh, I was lying there pretty much smoking away, blood coming out everywhere. Um, he, he says I was very lucky to survive that. And the condition he saw me after that strike day is, is amazing. Um, but, you know... Uh, since then, uh, I've been shocked twice by lightning. Just funny enough, the other day, playing uh, a tournament on a Champions Tour, they called us off the course and I was walking with my umbrella and a lightning bolt hit very close to us um, next to the clubhouse and I got a shock from that little spring that they have on the umbrella onto my thumb. It's, uh, it's amazing. Uh, you know, it's been three times now. Somebody's really liking me or really hating me. <laughs> yeah, someone's sending the, you a message. You must have the, shut the, yourself. <laughs> but I'm, I'm still going, you know. Uh, it, I, maybe it's just, you know, he likes charging me up so now and then. <laughs> not going to stand next to you on a golf course, Ratif. <laughs> Obviously, you were a youngster at the time, but can you remember how that lightning strike perhaps altered your, your personality or your outlook on life and the game? Did it have any impact? I don't know. Yeah, I was quite heavy into the game then anyway. This was just before I turned 16. Um, when it, um, So, uh, you know, by then I was pretty much into the game. Or And, you know, for me, I was in hospital probably a week and then I had another week or so to recover from some of the burns and stuff. Um, but I was, as soon as I can get a shoe on, I was, I was back on a golf course. And um, I, I had to get an ear operation also after that, uh, left eardrum burst during the uh, strike. But, um, you know, I'm very lucky uh, to walk away from a lightning strike whenever you walk away from yeah. a lightning strike. you like. Just take us through uh, where you are at at the moment. Whereabouts do you live? Where, you, where are your kids? What are they doing? You know, what's the family up to? Where do you have homes? Well, um, I actually live in Orlando now, uh, full-time for the last uh, seven years. I lived in London before that for probably a good 18 years. And uh, my wife's English. And But, you know, just after my back surgery, I had 
eight years or so ago now, I've, I've really decided that, you know, I don't want to travel much anymore. I mean, uh, at one stage I was playing three different tours around the world and, you know, playing 38 tournaments around the world really takes a toll on your body. And I've really decided to move to America and focus my last few years on the, on the PGA tour till I was 50 and then, and then, uh, get onto the champions tour. Um, Leo is now 18 already. Uh, he's just finished uh, school. He's going to college, uh, in a couple of months time. Um, he's, he's a, he's a good player, you know, he's probably a one handicap player, but he's, He's not really at the moment thinking that he would like to take it any further than just a casual player. Uh, I think he's a little scared. He realizes how hard it is. Uh, you know, it's not easy. There's, the competition is 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 fairly uh, fairly tough out there at the moment. Um, but yeah, he's going to college and he'll be studying engineering and and he will play a bit of golf for the team and see how it goes from there. I, I think he likes uh, once he gets him maybe into that little bit of team environment, practicing and playing with the other kids. He he might get it a little bit more addicted to the game. So we don't know. He's got the potential to be a good player. He hits the ball 300 uh, yards plus. He hits it a long way. Um, and uh, so we'll see where he goes from that. Ella is uh, 16, so she's still got a couple of years left at school. And uh, But she she hates golf with a passion. She's not interested at all. It's the most boring thing for her to go and walk around a golf course with me and and see how I'm playing golf. So uh, she is about as far away from golf as you can get. But she likes all the other. She's she's actually very good at uh, gymnastics and uh, weightlifting. Funny enough, she uh, weightlifts for the team for the school team. So she's very strong and fit. Very lucky on that front that they, the kids are all heavy into into sports. And Tracy is very well. Travels with me a little bit now uh, whenever she can. It's a little easier when the kids are a little older. They can sort of look after themselves. Yeah, the last uh, year has obviously been a mess for everybody with the uh, yeah. COVID. Uh, um, but, you know, we're lucky that the tour over here now is pretty much fully opened up. The uh, 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 Champions Tour and uh, things are going well. So uh, we're now getting into a nice role. As I say, about five, six weeks ago, we really started getting playing almost week in and week out now. Ratif, as we as we chat to you, it's almost 20 years to the day that you won that first US Open title at Southern Hills 2001. Um, and we're speaking to you at a time when the US Open is taking place as well. Um, take your mind back 20 years ago. Can you believe, first of all, it's 20 years? And those recollections from that sort of historic day, um, the playoff, uh, the 18-0 playoff with Mark Brooks and, and winning that major title. Yeah, it's always uh, great memories. And obviously, we played our PGA, senior PGA championships uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago at uh, Southern Hills. Yeah, in the third place there. Uh, yeah, the golf course has changed quite drastically since uh, we played. They've uh, made the fairways much wider and lengthened the course. Uh, the greens are quite similar. Here and there, there's a couple of completely new greens, but the course is really totally different than what it was in 01 and 07, I think, when we played there too. So great memories playing there the other day. And and um, I'm actually going to go and play at Shinnecock uh, in, later in the year in a charity event. Um, I haven't been back there since I won there in 04, so it'll be great memories to get back there. And while you're talking Shinnecock, I, I suppose, you know, I'm curious as to your re- recollections of that as well. I mean, paired with, you know, unbelievably paired with Ernie in that final round going going into the final round at Shinnecock in 04. Unfortunately, Ernie shooting 80, but you 
coming out on top, edging out Phil Mickelson for a second US Open title. Your recollections of that day and playing with your old mate and, and what that was like, you know, watching him slide down the leaderboard, but you obviously fighting hard, making a bunch of clutch putts and, and edging out Phil Mickelson. Yeah, it, it was great playing with Ernie, at least, you know, I think it could have been a different atmosphere playing with uh, Phil. But I must say, when uh, Phil was in the group in front of me, it was mentally very tough. You know, people, what people were saying, the crowds were saying, you know, the New York crowd can be quite vocal, trying to talk you out of the game. But my focusing was so good. A couple of holes, my caddy said, you know, did you hear what that guy said? And I said, no, what did he say? You know, so once you get into that zone and and, and well-focused, nothing really puts you off. And uh yeah, I mean, it was great we're playing with Ernie. Obviously, he was he was in there for the first few holes and then things started going bad for him as it did for a lot of players. So it really just came down to me and Phil at the end. And uh, luckily for me, he made the mistake on 17 and that gave me that two-shot lead going down the last. But unfortunately, the following year at, uh, in, at Pinehurst, you know, when I was leading going to the final round, it yeah. was my turn to blow it up and, and uh, shoot 80 or whatever and um, fall back down the leaderboard. So uh, it just shows, you know, the US Open how quickly it can uh, stand up and bite you. And Ratif, what was harder to win, 01 or 04? Is getting over the line the first time the hardest or, or the weight of expectation now that people and, and perhaps yourself know that you're capable of it? Well, I think 01 was uh, a little tougher for your for yourself in the belief in your self belief. Um, you've never been in that stage. It's the biggest stage you you, you can be on, pretty much. And uh, at that time, I did work with a sports psychologist, and I think it helped me a lot to to keep my nerves and mind quiet um, and and just get down and be focused and playing the game. But I I actually was playing very well just a few weeks before that in England. Uh, I hit the ball really well. I just couldn't make a putt and uh, and then flew over there and played a practice round, funny enough, with Nick Price. And he won the PGA Championship there. And uh, just going around the course and seeing what clubs he was hitting and how he was going about uh, managing his way around in the practice round sort of gave me a bit of a game plan to play um, the course and I stuck with that and it turned out that week my putter got hot and I made everything on the greens and besides still a 72nd hole when I three putted <laughs> yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah that was sort of the real first time I, my concentration really went and you know I was playing with Stuart Sink who was into into the mix as well and um, he missed his birdie putt and he thought okay I'll just finish off because I'm out of it now and he misses that short one and then it was up to me to two putt and I three putted and so yeah a lot went on on that green and uh, uh, and I think I completely lost my focus there and, but I felt pretty good that night uh, I know I was playing well I got one guy that I had to go beat it the following day and the putter stayed hot and uh, pulled it off you know a couple of weeks ago I, I think one of the one of the most amazing things I've seen Phil Mickelson winning the PGA Championship at his age and then you've got you know the incredible probably last uh, five or six years of Bernard Langer also let's not forget Freddie Couples how is it that these guys are playing well at your age or their age some of them are much older than you well, Bernard's how 63 is or something what like is that. the secret to longevity in golf it really, the, the secret is how healthy can you stay for a long period? Um, you know, golf swing takes a lot of stress on your body and your joints. And if you look at uh, Fred Couples, you know, he's extremely flexible, but he has a bad back and that's held him back for a long time, but he still plays amazing. 
Bernard Langer is, hasn't changed since he was 18. You know, still wears the same waist size trousers he, and he is extremely consistent and uh, and have no issues, you know, and one of the strongest mind golfers out there. And without a strong mind, you're not going to uh, win as well. Uh, and Phil is another guy, extremely flexible, and he's looked after himself over the years. He's He's not really had any injuries. He's not had things that really holds him back from practicing and playing. I think Phil could have won more if he was a little bit more focused on playing the game and not just trying to show off with see how far he can hit it and things like that. I think he probably could have, with a little bit of better course management, won a few more majors. We know that there's a few that he that he threw away with some wild shots that wasn't necessary to hit or the clubs he used to hit off the tee. But um, it was great to see him win a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, he's only, what, played three events on a Champions Tour and won two of them. And he's really, in the last three years, four years, he's really focused on his diet and he's actually lost quite a bit of weight. So, it, it you know, it shows you you're lucky in this game if you look after yourself and you don't have injuries and the mind stays strong, you, you can win for a long time. If you listen to Phil, though, it's all about the coffee. It's all about the coffee. <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, the guys, uh, a lot of guys drink this CBD uh, coffee and all that stuff. Apparently, it's good for the joints and things. Who knows? But, um, you know, the, the great thing about the, the golf is, you know, um, everybody still gets drug tested. Uh, it keeps the game within the integrity. Um, but the guys all know, you know, it, it's diet and consistency and staying injury free that really makes you play this game for a long time. On that note, Ratif, I mean, do you feel the, the injuries and you had your fair share of them, you know, a toe, you know, you, you obviously had, you had eye surgery as well. You had back problems. Do you feel that that, that cut, your, cut your career short from a from a main PGA Tour point of view and, and perhaps curtailed what you could have achieved? Yeah, my back got pretty bad. Yeah, from around when I was 39, my back got to a, got pretty bad and, you know, traveled to a full-time physio, slept on hotel room floors and not sleep on the bed. You know, if the mattress was anything too soft or something, uh, my back will flare up. So I ended up sleeping on the floors uh, in hotel rooms, which was all floors are consistent, and uh, I did that a lot, and uh, that helped. I tried to stay away from surgery as long as I could, but yeah, yeah, probably ten years ago it really got so bad, and that's when I decided that you know surgery. When you when you can't actually put your own shoes on anymore, you couldn't bend down and put your shoes on. Um, uh, uh, you know that you know the game was over for you, or. You get the surgery, and if it works, great. If it doesn't, you're still in the same boat. And luckily for me, I haven't had any back pain since my surgery now, nine years ago, eight years ago. But, yeah, you have your other injuries. I've had broken finger and broken toes. Uh, I have a shoulder that gives me a little issue some now and then and a bit of a neck. Didn't you have an arm injury at one point as well? You couldn't, you couldn't extend your arm properly? Yeah, I went snow skiing December 99. And uh, fell my backside off pretty much and cracked the, cracked the arm. And actually still flew to South Africa thinking that I could play. And I played the Pro-Am in the first round. But I was in so much pain um, because there was no swelling. And that's uh, when Chantal Duchesne, the physio, said to me, I think we should go and get an x-ray done. At least we can see what's going on. And that's when a guy told me, no, your, your one bone in your forearm is, 
is cracked. You uh, you basically broken arm. So I played two rounds of golf with a broken arm. So uh, yeah, I've had my fair share of injuries and broken things over the years, but we're still going. Ratif, um, you know some of the other South Africans that we don't hear much about who play very little now. I think on the Champions Tour, and I'm thinking of people like Dennis Watson, Fulton Allen. I know David Frost is playing a bit more than he is. Uh, Nick Price doesn't play at all now. Do you ever bump into those guys? Well, uh, Dennis Watson, I see him so now and then. Um, he comes out, but not playing. Just whenever there's a tournament, yeah, he just comes and say hi to the guys. Fulty, I haven't seen for a long time. I know he struggled with health issues. David Frost still plays pretty much every event. And funny enough, me and David are, are good buddies. There's a lot of events that we, we rent a house together and we share a house for the week. Um, he's a great character to hang around with. And, you know, if, if you need to know where all the best restaurants and the best wine is, you speak to Frosty, he'll take you there. And, uh, so, yeah, me and Frosty has become great, great friends. And uh, he's sort of... Uh, my, my manager, he, you know, he just looks after me very well. Do you critique each other's wines? Uh, yeah, for, you know, obviously my wine's better than Frosty's. Yeah. And he says, <laughs> so. obviously. We, we're always going to be, you know, punting your own stuff. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. Now let's, now while we're on the subject, I enjoy my wine. Okay. But I'm not an expert. I just like drinking. <laughs> so, Join the club, now we Dale. have Goose Wines, we have Ernie's Wines, we have Frosty's Wines, and I'm only going to talk about Greg Norman. Okay? I'm not going to talk about the other guys because you know I don't think they, they kind of seriously like you guys are into wine. Of the four, which is the best? Be honest. Of course, my wine's the best. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, the thing about wine is it's very much like food. Everybody's uh, taste buds are different. So you could drink a wine that you really like and I'll drink the same wine and I won't like it or vice versa. And, and it's the same with food. You know, there's certain food or tastes you like and some tastes you don't. So uh, that's the way I look at it. You know, uh, wine is very personal. You just got to try all the different varietals that's available for you to really make up your own mind what what you like and uh, I, that's lucky thing for me you know traveling around the world from one country to another country and then you're in Italy then you're in Portugal then you're in Spain and France and so on when you every night you have to go to a restaurant to get something to eat and uh, that's how I really developed my my taste for different kind of grapes and stuff I like and uh uh, by having a glass of wine with my dinner. And that's how you develop your taste for different varietals. If you're in South Africa, which you are every year, and there's no goose wine on the menu, what would you order? Oh, that's that's a tough one. Generally, I, I, I like uh, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, really. It's a wine I like to drink just before a meal. And I do like a glass of red wine with a meal. I... Uh, uh, I would say my, my favorite is a Cabernet. It's my favorite red wine to drink. So, uh, you know, South Africa has so, so many great varietals and great wineries. And, you know, it's the second oldest wine region in the world outside continental Europe. Um, so we have, really have some of the best wines in the world. And uh, really for me, going to South Africa, and if I can't get my wine, buying any wine there, doesn't matter which uh, winery it is, I know I'm buying good quality wine. Your farm, 
Retief, in the long term. Very curve. politically correct. Yeah, no, very, very, <laughs> very, very well dodged there. Um, <laughs> but your farm's in the Lungcliffe. I mean, I've driven through the Lungcliffe. It's very, very beautiful. But on the title deed of the farm is Ganse Kral, which means Goose's Enclave. This is destiny. Yeah, you know, it, you know, me and my friend Werner, we were sitting on a beach having a glass of wine, yeah, 2003, and we started talking about getting into the wine. And um, he just happened to bump into this guy one night at, at Fan Court. I was doing wine tasting there, and he started chatting to him, and he asked him, where are you in Stellenbosch and blah, blah, blah. And he said, no, I'm actually just here on the mountains in the upper Lungcliffe. Yeah, uh, next to George. And uh, he went to go and see the farm. And, um, you know, it's more of a farm. I won't call it a winery. You know, there's vines and everything on it, but it's uh, the rest of the land is really used for farmland in the way of cattle uh, and sheep. Really, I fell in love with the, with the place. And, yeah, the title did. Yeah, maybe it was meant to be. And 2004, I bought the winery. And here we are, uh, 16, 17 years later still going and uh we've, we've been suffering with severe droughts obviously there in the last few years uh, water is uh, scarce but uh the the quality of the grapes are great uh Retief, i want to go back to your your playing days and and, and return to the sort of early 2000s you had the u.s open win in, in 01 and then 2004 the second u.s open title and, and a couple of great years after that where obviously you were at the peak of your powers at what point then you obviously you had your injuries but at what point did you realize that you know, like all golfers on the, on, on the premium tour the PGA tour the European tour what point did you get a sense that that, that your that your game wasn't where it, was, it needed to be to compete with the top guys and 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 you and you got a sense that this is you know, your your main tour career was coming to an end um you know I, I still won a tournament on a PGA tour when I was 40 uh one in Tampa and I was sort of so, so we're talking 12 years ago now. So that was a 2009, 2010 when I won in Tampa. And um, after that, that's uh, really when my back started going really sideways. And, um, and then you get to a point where you know you, you, you physically can't compete with the, the guys anymore. Um, if, like I said, if you, if you can't bend over to putt, if you can't even put your own golf shoes on, you, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, how good you are if you just can't do it. I probably tried too long to doctor the back. I've had injections. I've had PRP. Uh, I tried for probably a couple of years staying away from surgery, but eventually it just, I, you know, when I couldn't walk anymore almost. And so there was probably a few years there. If I had the surgery quicker, it might have might have been a different. I could have played a little bit better early in my 40s. Um, but as I say, you know, also this game is about confidence and self-belief. And at one stage, you probably believe, well, you can't win on this tour anymore. You can't beat these young guys or whatever. You're just sort of playing to play and and, and do okay. But um, I, I, I was happy when the Champions Tour came around. It felt like, a, you know, I was a rookie again. Uh, I, I felt good. My body feels good. Um, the game... Was was okay, and I had a really good chance to win it all in my first year on the Champions Tour, and then lost in that playoff to to lose it all. But um, it's been a great revival, the Champions Tour, really getting out there and playing with guys that you used to play, and you feel like you can compete. Um, you know, Phil obviously feel he can still compete with the youngsters, and 
very glad it went his way at the PGA Championships and, you know, records are there to be broken and maybe one day somebody else is going to come around that's a little older and 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 win a major. Um, longevity is now a big thing in on it on both tours. Uh, guys are staying fit, uh, even on a champions tour. The guys are on the physio trailers. They're working out. They they're eating healthy. Maybe John Daly doesn't go to the physio trailers <laughs> and work out, but uh, but uh, most of the guys are really extremely competitive. They you can't believe uh, you know they all fun and games in a clubhouse. When you get on that first tee, it's a, you know that killer instinct kicks in well just on john daly when you joined the pga tour sort of full-time in the early 2000s he was he was the big hitter on tour he was averaging just sort of over 300 yards and i don't think you were too far behind and the average on tour back then was around 280 yards you're number one in driving on the champions tour you're sitting at around i think you're 299 or 300 so is it fair to say that you are hitting it further now than you did 20 years ago oh yeah definitely I am uh, getting some big drives out there at the moment. I changed to Callaway a few years ago, and with Callaway, I felt my driving distance has just improved. Uh, the golf ball is really good from Callaway. And, and yeah, I, I'm working out in the gym, and I'm staying strong, and the back's feeling good. Uh, if, if you time it well, I, you, you, you know, you hit it out there consistently, 300, 330 yards now, um, depending on conditions. Um, but there's a lot of guys that still hit a long way. Daly is still long, but uh, Daly with his injuries and his knee, bad knee, you know, he's, he, he just can't really hit it as hard as he used to. Um, I mean, that guy was extremely long in his time. You know, the thing that surprises me on, on the, the champion, and it surprised me from day one on the Champions Tour, is that you have the, the, the really top players, yourself, uh, Ernie, Phil Mickelson, even, even guys like Jerry Kelly and guys like that, that come out and turn 50 and do really well. But then there are always kind of one or two guys you've never heard of. They've never played mm. the PGA Tour. And they've obviously been club professionals or very good amateurs. And they, they get to 50, they turn professional, and they come out and they do well. You know, and I'm thinking, I mean, two names that are new to me, a guy, David McKenzie, mm. and a guy by the name of Shane Birch. Now, yeah. I don't know. I don't know them. I don't know if they were club pros or I don't, you know, if they did play on the tour, I don't know that they played for very long, but it, it's kind of always amazed me that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, there's, there's uh, you know, I mean, a few years ago, Bruce Fleischer was never to be seen on tours. He cut on a champions tour and I don't know, won 30 tournaments or something. Uh, another guy that never played anywhere, Scott Perrell, you know, he's consistently up there every week in the top 10 and winning, um, yeah, and Shane Birch, he's come out of nowhere and had a chance to win a couple of times this season already. Um, but the thing about a Champions Tour is it's it's the courses are set up very much in play for everybody. It's unlike the PGA Tour where every hole is 500 yards with six inches of rough. You know, we play 450 yards uh, with two or three inches of rough. So they've really make trying to make it as as playable for every player in the field and uh maybe yes yeah, some some guys just was never really that good enough on a champions tour to perform week in and week out but i uh, sorry on a pga tour but on a champions tour their game is very suited for the setups and yeah i mean it all it all comes down to just finding your place where you where you're comfortable too 
I mean, me and Ernie, we've played this game for, on a professional level for such a long time. We have a lot of skeletons in our heads, you know, of bad shots you've hit over the years and things. Uh, well, some of these guys, you know, they only had to start worrying about it when they were 50 and, and really just they had no fear and just played a game and, and, and winning a lot. Um, but it's extremely competitive. Uh, that's why you see... A, you know, really a lot of short hitters are doing very well on the Champions Tour and not necessarily like the PGA Tour, you know, every week it seems to be a guy that hits at 3.30 off the tee that wins. Um, um, so they they very um, conscious on, because on, on, you still have guys playing that's 65 plus, you know, on the Champions Tour. Uh, coming up 70, some of the guys, uh, Jay Haas and those guys, you know, Jay was up there last week. After two rounds, he was, you know, I think lying fourth or fifth. So the, the courses are really set up for everybody. You mentioned a couple of mental skeletons in the closet, and that was an issue for you back earlier on in your career, and you mentioned your psychologist that you were working with. Was it Joss van Stippot, I think was his name? Yeah. You said before that you tended to hold on to things and, and keep things too long and drag them with you tournament to tournament. How did you eventually get over that? Yeah, I mean, the, this game is funny. It's easy to say, well, why don't you just go out there, think positive, and, and just do it, um, you know? You stand on the driving range, everybody hits at 3.30, down the middle, and, and dead straight. And then on the golf course, the one guy shoots 80 and the other guy shoots 65. Um, really, where does the difference come? And then you start thinking, okay, well, short game makes a big difference. You know, if you have a great short game and putter, you, you can score. But then once pressure comes involved, it's the guys with the strongest mind and self-belief that seem to to come out on top. I mean, you, you can go down a list, all the great players of all time, they've um, been extremely mentally strong. Actually, the, the, the more under pressure they, they, they got, the more, in a way, calmer they got and the more they felt this is where I belong and this is this is for me. And while other players will crack under pressure and, and start losing their focus. And for me, it was getting into that sort of bubble and that's probably why I didn't show much emotion on a golf course. I was got into my zone of focusing and just staying. I didn't want my mind to wander and uh, and find myself that that might put me off or take away from my focusing. So that's probably why I was a little bit non-emotional on a golf course. Didn't show a lot of emotion, but I was just in a way afraid of letting go of the focus. With that in mind, Retief, was there a, f- a phase in your career even pre-01 when you won the first major, when you really felt like you belonged and you could beat the best guys out on tour, which at the time, if you look at the early 2000s, included a certain Tiger Woods. When did you really feel like, I can go head-to-head and beat the likes of a Tiger or anyone else in a field on any given day? Well, uh, I knew I was good enough. Uh, I won a few events already in early 90s uh, on, on a European tour, um, but I, I knew something was missing. I was getting angry on a golf course. I was throwing my toys out in the cot and uh, just moaning constantly. And uh, that's when I thought, you know, maybe the mental side of the game needs more work than the physical side. And and that's when it changed for me. Once I got myself mentally to calm myself and stay in the moment on every shot and completely forgot about uh, forget about the last shot you've just hit and just immediately start focusing on the next shot was was the key thing we all still drag you know uh, only if on that hole there i you know hit this club you know uh, but it's gone it's nothing you can do about it and it's amazing how it affects the next shot or the next hole coming up able to rebound from a mistake is is key 
This is a tough question. One golf shot that sometimes <laughs> you're lying in bed and you think, wow, that shot really made me proud. That's a shot I'm going to remember on my deathbed. There's probably a, a, a few or a couple, should I say. The second shot I hit into Southern Hills on a 72nd hole, uh, when I killed a six iron up that hill there to get it to within 15 feet and then proceeded to three putt. But <laughs> that was probably one of the best golf shots I've hit. And then I would say probably in the World Cup in Japan, me and Ernie in the playoff, when I hit, when he hit the tee shot into the fairway bunker on the 18th of par five. And uh, I said to Ernie, you know, okay, what do you think? Lay up, chip a seven iron out, or I hit a two iron out the bunker over a lip under a tree, cut it around a tree, over water. Pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah. basic. <laughs> Whatever you feel, you know. And um, I hit the thing on the green, and uh, we two-putted to get into the playoff. So, you know, I would say that's probably the best golf shot I've ever hit under pressure and what it meant. And for me, then, only went on to win the World Cup. I have to ask you about that putter that you and unfortunately, but fortunately, because you won it in the end, but you three stabbed with. Apparently, its name is Tracy. Yes. After the missus. Um, after your missus. You named your putter after your wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, it didn't quite like, work out like that. Um, uh, Harold Swatch in England was uh, the guy that made the putters. Seagroove uh, putters, it was called. And uh, at the time, it, it was owned by Progear. And uh, I picked the putter up, funny enough, probably only a few weeks before the US Open on a putting green day with him and really liked the way it felt and, uh, and, and put it in the bag. And then after I won the US Open, a company over here bought them. And then for some reason, all their putters, they gave it lady names, you know, Tracy or Dawn or whatever. All their putters were named after ladies, and for, they thought it was fitting to call this model putter Tracy because my wife was Tracy. Aha, uh-huh. okay. Okay, all right. I thought you were dancing with death there. <laughs> <laughs> You've obviously, uh, last week, you saw the, the wonderful effort of uh, Gary Higo mm. and... Sure, I don't know whether you've ever seen Volko or no. Have you met Volko in No, I've not met uh, either of the kids, but it's great to see. Well, I promise you, these two guys, this is the Retief Quirson and the Ernie Els of 30 years ago. I promise you, these two guys are seriously special. Um, I've never seen anybody hit a golf ball even <coughs> close to as far as Volko Ninaba as easily as he does it. And mm. then Eric Higo is just so focused, it's unbelievable. I mean, he's got such a strong mind for such a young man. It's quite incredible. But it must, especially what you've done for junior golf, what Ernie's done for junior golf, to see guys like this coming from South Africa must really, really do your heart good. Yeah, you know, it, it's great to see. I've never met uh, either of the kids, but uh, we were sitting somewhere uh, playing a tournament and they had the tournaments on on the European tour in Tenerife somewhere. And this uh, Garrett was leading and I was sitting with Ernie, funny enough, and he said, you know, the kid went to college over here and he spent quite a bit of time with Ernie. Very soft-spoken and big Christian kid and the kid went on to win and um, which was great and then the following week another South African won and then the following week Gary won again the South African kids has really done South Africa very proud I mean yeah it's it's been a while you know it was me and Ernie and then Charles and Louis came around um, 
then they sort of went off track a little bit. Charles lost his game a little, but I was nice to see that Louis playing well again. And then, yeah, suddenly these two kids come out and just suddenly taken over. It's great to see for golf. And yeah, you're right. It, it, the tall kid like Ernie and, and Garrett, that's a little bit like mine. He seems personality-wise a little bit like I used to be, you know, just gets on with it and it's good shot after good shot. It's, um, uh, you know, there's big talk of it over here with these two kids suddenly, you know. Wilco's getting major publicity for his long hitting and, and Garrett just for his consistency and how uh, good person he is. So be interesting to see how they do uh, in the US Open. You know, the one tournament that he won was in the Canary Islands. Correct, yeah. Now, I don't know whether you knew this, but did you know in the Canary Islands, there are no Canaries? <laughs> Do you know in the Virgin Islands? Now, there are uh-huh. also no Canaries. <laughs> there are also no Canaries. <laughs> I know where you were going. <laughs> Ritif, as, as we wrap it up, I just want to know, this is, and this is a general question, it's not just South African golf related, but in your opinion, how good does someone have to be? How good does a youngster have to be now? To make it well you know if if you can't go out there every round you play and you pretty much shoot four under par you know you you're not going to make it it is uh it's tough out there uh, and a very fine line between making it and, and and not making you're talking one shot by the end of the year makes a huge difference and um you know if, if you think about it when when tiger was in his prime winning all those tournaments he only won something like 23% of the tournaments he played in. But if you look at a, a tennis player like Federer, when he was in his prime, every every time he played, 98% of the time he won. So it's it just shows you how different golf is. It's to win is if you if you win a tournament, you've had an unbelievable year. You know, at the end of the day, it comes down to the, the score at the bottom of the scorecard. You, you, you got to find a way of scoring. Doesn't matter how long you hit it or or anything like that. It all round every part of your game needs to be sharp. I remember David Frost saying once that if you're not shooting, in his opinion, back then, if you weren't shooting five or six under consistently on your home track, don't even bother. Correct. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of kids, you know, like here at Alworth, it's a pretty tough golf course. And I think my handicap over here, every time I teared up with the amateurs, they put me on a plus six. So, I mean, you know, I got to shoot like 60 to have a chance of winning the individual stable fit. But uh, it it just shows you, yeah, you got to, on your home track at least, shoot that every time, five, four, five, six under. And whenever you play other tournaments, you got to find a way to shoot under par. Ratif, it's been awesome having you on the podcast. Thank you for, for giving of your time. You're sixth in the race to the Charles Schwab Cup. You're doing pretty well hmm. over there, but we obviously keep an eye on you. Ernie's sitting in third spot. So, yeah, it's it's looking good from a South African perspective there as well. So all the very best with, with the remainder of the season. And thank you for, for giving us your time today. It's, it's been really interesting to catch up with you and find out a little bit about you. Thank you, guys, and all the best there. Thanks, Ratif. Really appreciate your time. Much, all the best. Give my love to Tracy. He's talking about the putter, Retief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Yeah. There it is. A win for the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.